I've seen a lot of things limited just because they don't want it to be prejudicial against the patient. Do reasonable physicians have a right to a difference of opinion? And I think that they do. I just believe that a lot of stuff we do is, again, entertainment and not science. Hello, good morning, and welcome. Rick Bucata here, July issue of Risk Management Monthly with Dr. Greg Henry on the line. Gregory? Hello. And we have Dr. Greg Moore on the line, our guest who, uh, who's been with us uh, two or three times now. Greg, welcome. Morning. Greg's up in Madigan, Washington, and um, we're going to discuss a paper that he and a, uh, and a colleague did, which I think is, just, just by the title alone, we have to do it. We, we had no choice, Greg. Yes. The title is Defense to Malpractice, What Every Emergency Physician Should Know. And it was written by Michael John Hudson, who is now an attending up there, who, you know, it's kind of bad when you graduate up there. When you graduate from your residency you, you, and you become an attending, you go to someplace like Iraq for your summer. And that's where uh, this uh, good doctor is, apparently. So we hope he stays well. But before we get into the business at hand, um, I want to personally apologize to Virginia Mangolds and to, um, let me get her name here, Teresa Campo. Both of those um, women are nurse practitioners who wrote very passionate, thoughtful, intelligent um criticisms of our little rant that occurred last week, last month, when we were clearly under-medicated and made some disparaging remarks regarding the PhD programs of uh, nurse practitioners. And, um, you know, I, I took him shots, and Gregory, you, you got some shots. Uh, I sent these to you as well. And, and um, we really offended these two folks, and I'm sure we offended a lot of other nurse practitioner uh, folks as well. And um, these letters are well written, and they're not just calling us names. Um, and I, um, I do want to apologize. We, I think we just kind of went over overboard a little bit. And um, one of the key concerns I had in these letters is that there was the implication that I had or we had little regard for nurse practitioners in the emergency department. And I personally can say that that is anything but true. I truly believe that nurse practitioners and PAs are the future of emergency medicine. When 30,000 um, more people or 30 million more people become insured by Obamacare, there's no way we're going to be able to take care of this this number of patients with our current level of staffing. No way. And frankly, you know, Greg, you you've used, used worked with collaboratively with nurse practitioners and PAs, and I have to believe that you have a similar view that of of, of their value. And I think it's really important that this these remarks, which are which are indiscreet in any way truly reflect our view on how important these folks are? Well, I think we were uh, low on our um, Haldol blow darts that month, Rick. Uh, what, 
what shouldn't be lost in this conversation, let's say we remove uh, humor and name-calling, is the fact that we have not resolved in this country what staffing, uh, and, and we use emergency medicine as the example, but we haven't resolved what staffing in healthcare should be. You realize of the 4,000 hospitals in the United States that have emergency departments, we don't have one hospital where we're doing variation in staffing in a scientific way to decide how many techs, whether you need uh, nurses, whether you need nurse practitioners, whether you need PAs, whether you need physicians. This issue is not going to go away. And I think that until we start getting serious about this kind of research, and and this is the most important question right now in medicine, is who's going to do what? 85% of the cost of health care is staffing. It is people. It's not equipment. It's not medicine. And if we don't start asking some of these questions correctly, we're we're not going to know how how to deal with the fact that the country is sinking financially. Well, that may or may that may be true, Greg. But um, I think the, the damage that we did was to cast aspersions on the entire concept of nurse practitioners, at least in the subset of getting the PhDs, that which we, we um, were not very charitable about, um, and some of the people who wrote wrote explanations about uh, the differences and why they do it and. You know, I think we have some legitimate concerns that there is no recertification process for nurse uh, nurse practitioners, just like there is for every other um, group of uh, pr- uh, clinical providers, including PAs and 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 doctors. And um, but so we have some, I think, legitimate concerns. But we offended. Uh, people in the process of making these concerns known. So I personally say, Virginia, I'm, I am sorry. I, um, I will try to be more careful. Teresa as well. Um, and any others of you who didn't write, but were offended. With that Agreed. under the, with that under the, the belt, let's move on <clears throat> to Greg's great paper, um, published in the journal of emergency medicine. Defenses to malpractice, what every physician should know. Now, we've talked about this before, but nobody's really put it together in one spot uh, we, uh, and um, covered all of the technicalities where you may be able to get out of a case even though you appear to meet the four criteria necessary to have a prima facie case against you. So let me introduce Greg. Greg is from uh, Madigan as well. He's faculty up there. He's been there for a long time. He's an MDJD. And Greg, would you just walk us through your paper? Uh, And I've got notes in the margins here about things I'd like to ask on this, but I thought this was a terrific paper. So uh, welcome aboard. Uh, Greg, this is probably your second or third time with us. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I think it's my, my third time. A font of knowledge. So, Greg, use give us this level of uh, information because I think that it's uh, it's it's definitely ab- above where we generally tend to hover. Thanks. Uh, 
yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm going to shout out Dr. Hudson. Uh, he's the first author on this paper, and <clears throat> he just did an amazingly uh, wonderful job uh, with me on it. Um, he is, I believe, uh, last I did not hear from him. He was in Kuwait, uh, deployed, and, and when you're a resident in emergency medicine in the Army, they say, congratulations, here's your certificate, now head on out to, to war. Um, so we got to give him kudos, but uh, as you already said, it's it's very interesting. You think uh, you look at the elements of malpractice, and I, I I should have done this, I didn't do it. They got hurt. Now I'm done. Um, but there's still little tricks you can pull out of the hat, and these are called affirmative defenses. And in the paper, we wanted everyone to know about those. And the first one is called assumption of the risk, and and basically. Um, the classic case on that is a patient that kept telling the staff there's a television cord on my floor and then they tripped on it and got hurt and then they sued for being hurt and the court said now wait a minute yeah, you knew the cord was there and you still tripped on it and it's sort of your own fault there was a risk there but you assumed it and um, so that's one defense you can use was there was I'm not going to do it many times but was there a duty yes was there a breach of duty yes you shouldn't have a cord across the floor and was there harm and causation yes um, but they got the off on the defense of assumption of the risk and how does this relate to emergency medicine uh, lots of times this is sort of like an informed consent situation where you may have a patient with a headache who you get a CT and it's negative and you say I would want to do a lumbar puncture now and they'll say and you tell them you could still have a bleed in your head and they say well I do not want a lumbar puncture and this is a defense then you may use uh, they knew there was a risk they didn't want to do it and they assumed the risk likewise with procedures you say I would like to do this procedure on you uh, but there's a risk and the patient says sure go ahead uh, if things don't go well one of your defenses could be even if you didn't do the procedure well, um, they assumed this risk. They knew it could happen. By the way, if if this happens, and uh, Greg, I've been involved in a lot of defenses which have used that assumption of risk question, the thing that bails you out then is that chart better show that this person had reasonable cap capacity, ability to make the decision, and you've actually presented the ups and downs of this situation otherwise that may not fly in court and it's there there's no hundred percent here uh, but you want to put yourself in the best possible position right this this is pretty synonymous with uh, informed consent you know uh, guys I remember when our insurance company a bunch of years ago said we want you to have consents for and it listed a whole bunch of procedures uh, lumbar punctures and um, blood gases and all kinds of uh, procedures for which we never used to have um, formal consents. And we, we thought, no, we don't want to do that. Um, but I think one of the reasons was that uh, it allowed this clause to be um, in included because if you did a, uh, a radial artery stick for blood gas and hit a nerve and there's a persistent neuropathy and that was listed as one of the risks associated with this procedure and the person said, okay, go ahead, that that would somehow absolve them. But Greg, I think the thing that you pointed out is correct, that you would have to basically tell them this is 
this is informed consent, and informed consent requires that they need to know the risks and benefits of the current procedure that you like to do, the risks and benefits of doing some alternative procedure um, in lieu of the one that you wanted to do, and the risks and benefits of doing nothing. And uh, it's not just say, uh, it's consent just doesn't say, okay, I give you my permission to do it without knowing these alternatives. And so our, our hospital um, resisted doing that. And the uh, insurance company said, well, if you insist, although it seems to me that they had a perfect right to say, if you want to be insured in the setting of these procedures, then we want this to occur. I, I want to I make sure that, that uh, people understand what we're really talking about is not informed consent. We're talking in most cases about informed refusal. If people are going along with the program, it's kind of assumed we've talked to people about things. It's when they don't want to do something that we want them to do is about the only time I ever see the lawsuits. Informed refusal and informed consent are two sides of the same coin. But yeah, but a lot of the legal cases also will come from doctors who have you know, uh, you know, do, well, Doctor Quack's uh, method of doing this, and the patient says, "Yes, I want to do that. Give me the IV mayonnaise," and then things don't work out. Um, then the defense is, "Hey, you know, we talked about this. They knew that this was just something I invented, and they wanted to try it." And um, then I'm going to use assumption of the risk as a defense. Right. You, you do give some examples in your co- column of uh, things that help clarify this concept. Moving on, um, let's, I think there's some more uh, we could get out of that um, uh, oh, assumption of the risk. I think we mm, think there's anything else here, Greg, that we ought to go through. Okay. Nope. Other than we're moving on to a good Samaritan out of hospital or in hospital um, actions or in airlines. The the good Samaritan defense, I think, is uh, one that most people feel that they are familiar with. And um, it started from the law's general feelings that we have doctors out there on the highways and people getting hurt. And we don't want them to just drive by and not stop because they are afraid of malpractice. Um, So the idea is we want them to stop. And if they stop, we're not going to hold them to the standard that they would have otherwise. And so the Good Samaritan Act was uh, enacted in most every state. And there's elements of every part of law. There are requirements, a bundle of requirements that have to be filled. And for... um, The Good Samaritan, what has to happen is it has to be an emergency that the person voluntarily tries to help, that the patient accepts the help, which usually they're in a bad situation, so it's just implied, and that the doctor does their best and they get nothing in payback. Those are kind of the elements. Um, The question, and, and and the reason we wrote about it here a little is the question happens, what about in a hospital? You know, uh, when we're not by the side of the highway, uh, is the doctor going to be liable if they provide substandard care? And most of the states, and it's something we all need to know, most of the states in the hospital, you are not allowed to to use this defense. Uh, There's many cases, and and examples are um, 
there's a lot of them are OB cases where there's a sudden delivery or a sudden problem and someone runs up and tries to help and there's a bad outcome and they will often let the physician off. Or I, I know of an emergency case where they kept calling the trauma surgeon and he was not available. So another trauma surgeon stepped in and things didn't go well, but they let that trauma surgeon off on the basis of the Good Samaritan. So when you're in the hospital, uh, cases go both ways. You really, if you can, should get a hold of your state law to, to know where, where you stand. By the way, most of those cases don't deal with the emergency department, uh, as uh, Greg Moore will <laughs> attest to here. Uh, there was a very famous case in Illinois where a patient was doing badly. They grabbed, the nurse grabbed a doctor in the hallway, brought them in, and it just so happened that the patient had not been given 10 units of insulin, but had been given 100. Uh, and the doctor's doing his best to figure this out. The patient uh, did have some neurologic damage. They went after the doctor, and he did win on that in that, and, and the theory of law was he had no previous relationship or obligation to help, and he did it because he was the only person standing in that position in that moment in time. And, and um, you know, I think for most emergency docs, we need to summarize this, that you sort of do the right thing no matter where you are, and, um, and, and we'll get by with it. By the way, a lot of states have bills pending. state of Michigan has one, SB 110, which, which uh, gives a different standard of care for emergency uh, treatment. Now, that didn't come about because of emergency medicine. It really came about because of cardiology, orthopedic surgeons, all those sorts of things. You want those people to come in, even if they don't know the patient, uh, so, that, uh, so that we can get the care we need for our patients. And so uh, this covers a lot of territory and a lot of people at this moment in time. So, so um, you know, the, the, some of the issues are, great, the, you know, you run up to an OB floor and you're not an OB doctor. You're really not in your area of care. But the Good Samaritan often will protect, like the trauma surgeon who took the patient to the OR. He's totally within his normal environment and things don't go well. But he was still provided protection because he didn't have a duty. He was voluntary. He didn't charge for it, which is a big key. You can't charge for it. And, um, you know, he wasn't just woefully or wantonly negligent. Um, so a couple caveats are if you have a group that contracts to provide in-house emergency care, then you, you have charged in advance or you are getting some compensation in some way and you're not going to be able to use this uh, law. Uh, Greg, in that regard, um, I, I was going to ask about that because uh, we had to go to in-house emergencies we were not – there was no dollar compensation for it. We could bill the patient if we elected to, um, and that, that was our option. And if we elected not to, you know, that, that was okay too. Um, so when you wrote that, that it's implied that if you agree to that as a part of a contract that you are being compensated, um, is that really generally the – case even if there is no compensation as best as you can determine so i wouldn't call myself an expert on this but um 
you know, if you don't charge, you have a much better chance of having sympathy in the courts. You know, a, a lawyer from the other side is going to argue you would. You know, your compensation was you might not have got this contract if you didn't say you would do this yes. for us. Mm-hmm. So By that's the way, what, that's what they're going to argue. We changed our contracts to say we would respond as would any other physician on the medical staff in a good Samaritan manner, um, and and that wording was worked on extensively in the contract. As any other physician under a good Samaritan sort of standard, uh, as long as the conditions of the emergency department allowed us to do so. What we didn't want to do was guarantee that we could be two places at one time. We couldn't be in the emergency department handling an airway and and be expected to be called up to uh, to handle something on the fifth floor of the hospital. Uh, I know a lot of this deals more with smaller and rural hospitals, not in huge mega medical centers. But in smaller hospitals, this is an issue, and uh, it, should be, it should be looked at carefully in the contract. And, and then it covers you for you know, bad outcomes unless they're just so completely egregious. Uh, and, and the silly example I'll often use is if you pulled over on the highway and someone's in arrest and you start doing CPR, but you, you sit on their face while you're doing it and occlude their airway – then uh, someone would say, "Come on, this is this is horrible." You knew that you sh- they were never going to make it if you occluded their airway. So, well, but, that's uh, why they use the term "gross negligence." Yeah, exactly. Right. I, I mean, I, I think <laughs> I, get it. I think we're never safe if if they <laughs> if we stop at the scene and they have a hangnail and we decide to remove their arm. I, th- right. I don't think you're safe in 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 any way, shape, or form on that sort of deal. So, Greg, so a lot you, of the a lot of these concepts actually then translate into you know a lot of us have been on uh, airline flights and and been asked to help and um, there actually is a federal law the 1998 uh, Aviation Medical Assistance Act which basically is a Good Samaritan law that says if you help on an airplane you cannot be held liable. Again, though, uh, a lot of times uh, people will be offered free flight certificates or drinks or so forth. But so then you 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 have the risk of giving up your Good Samaritan defense because now you've taken pay for it. Um, I've never seen a case where this issue has come up, but it's just something to be aware of. I I think if you took real money, but there is still a concept in law of de minimis. And if they buy you a free drink, that's de minimis. (laughs) I I, I think you would get by with that. By the way, I have never seen a case, and, and having been doing this for 34 years, I've never seen any case of a physician uh, giving care outside the hospital setting uh, where the usual and customary things happen on a bus, on an airplane. I've been asked 11 times on airplanes to give care. You know what? I, I, I think it would be a pretty damn unusual situation where a jury would find against you for, for, for just volunteering your services. I, I, I just don't think the country has gone that crazy yet. Yeah, I agree with you totally. Greg, can we go through the – I see here what I uh, circled as six specific points in the uh, Good Samaritan Laws uh, that I'd just like to read if I could. Sure. The, the incident uh, is an emergency, so that has to be a given. I guess there are things that um, are not 
emergencies that um, like a nursemaid's elbow that says, this will keep, uh, go to your doctor kind of thing. The act of rendering care is voluntary. You're not obligated as we are in some of our hospital contracts. And and Greg, you brought that up over and over again, that you can't be two places at once. And if you obligate yourself to, you're not doing yourself any favor. The third point... The third point was the person receiving care accepts it, and that that's pretty likely to happen. Um, the fourth is the care provided is in good faith uh, to help this person. Fifth, the provider receives no reimbursement for care provided. And then in the airline part, you said um, that care could be as subtle as you know getting a first-class seat or a pass or a drink or something like that. But then again... There's been no case log in that area. And the care cannot be grossly negligent. And that's a recurring theme in all of all of these laws. Um, grossly negligent comes popping up over and over again. And in your paper, you give an example of somebody who is in a trauma case who has a knife stuck in their chest. And the emergency doctor removes the knife. And um, we know that's considered to be grossly negligent in terms of uh, potentially exsanguinating the patient, and that would be considered you would have avoid you would avoided the Good Samaritan uh, provision of your defense. Right, right. So those 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 six things are called elements in law, and in, and like malpractice has the four elements, and those are the elements for the Good Samaritan defense. Each. Each concept will have its requirements to be utilized uh, in a court. Should I go to the next one? Yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, the next the next uh, kind of section is um, one that comes up a lot. It's called contributory negligence uh, and slash comparative fault. They're kind of kissing cousins, but contributory negligence is when the patient or the plaintiff um, does something – which sort of helps cause more harm or causes a big part of the harm. Um, and I'll give you the first case of this was in 1800, and a guy was riding a horse, and he hit a, a pole that was across the road. Uh, but they found out he'd been drinking, and he was riding his horse as fast as it could go. And if he had been riding normally and sober, he would have noticed the pole and, and not hit it. And the court said, when you do things that cause your own injury, then the other person is not responsible. You are responsible. And that kind of translates over into medicine. You'll have people that don't follow directions or or don't present in a timely fashion or do what they're told. And then you can use this kind of a defense, contributory negligence, the the one example that really related to the ER was there was a patient who was RH negative and um, a pregnant patient with a threatened abortion and she knew she was. She had gotten Rogram in the past and she didn't tell anyone and she didn't get Rogram on this instance and then went on to have problems and they brought into court that you know you had this information, you knew it, you were aware of it, you didn't share it and part of the bad outcome is, is your very own fault. So, sometimes, uh, Greg, we use that in the defense. Uh, let's say an appendicitis case. You're told to see the doctor the next morning, and you've not. And you're feeling okay the next morning, or you're uh, not so bad, or you got something to do, and you don't come back for two other days. 
Well, the doc told you to come back the next morning for reevaluation. At some point in time, you've assumed a certain amount of your own care and your own risk uh, when those things go, go on. This is essentially an extension of the assumption of risk doctrine. Right. And, and um, you know, th- it's, um, it's, it's tricky when you actually get into courts. Uh, you wa- you want to use this. You want to point out that they didn't, you know, when they didn't do what you told them to do or they, or, or, uh, they didn't follow directions, uh, take medicines that you told them to take, then, then it's pretty easy to bring it in. But sometimes it's a difficult defense to bring in because there was a bad outcome and, and you say they should have called EMS and now they're dead. And juries, uh, they're usually lay people. They don't understand medicine. Sometimes they'll get in the patient's mind and say, well, I'm not sure I would have known what to do in that situation either. So if you stand up and kind of implicitly say, you know, the patient was an idiot or the patient was stupid, um, juries can react negatively to this defense. So you gotta you gotta present it in a in a proper fashion sometime to make it work. You know, I, I've seen that a lot of times where where they they want to talk about the basic structure of who this person is and what it's like. And and sometimes the judge will not let certain things into evidence, i.e. It, it's not necessarily important that they were doing time in jail at that point or that they're currently under indictment, all these various things. I've seen a lot of things limited just because they don't want it to be prejudicial against the patient. Right, and, and that's, uh, that goes into the rules of, of evidence and discovery, and, and you can't bring in things that don't apply um, about a person's past that might give a negative connotation. Uh, unless they open the door. So if uh, someone says, well, I'm one of the smartest physicians uh, on staff, and then you realize they failed their boards, you could not tell the jury they failed their boards twice. But if they say, I'm one of the smartest guys around, they've opened the door for you to bring that in. Yes. Greg, this uh, contributory negligence and comparative fault, I often find that they're viewed as confusing. Um, Is is it not that in contributory negligence, it's an all or nothing kind of thing, and the states determine if you're fifty one percent guilty of causing your problem, then you have no claim, or fifty percent, then you have no claim. This is not a, this is not the situation where they adjudicate partial blame and partial payments. This is an all or nothing concept. Is that more or less true? Yeah, that's perfect. Um, so contributory negligence uh, basically is, is an all or none, and it's, it basically says if the patient or the plaintiff did any amount of wrong, then they can't even move forward. And then over time, court said, you know, that's not really fair. Maybe, maybe they took two pills a day instead of three pills a day, so they were a little bit wrong. But should they not get to recover any further damages when the doctor might have been 90% wrong? So the contributory negligence evolved into a concept of comparative fault where now they say, well, the doctor was X percent wrong and the patient was X percent wrong. Now, now five states, I guess you would call this sort of conservative, five of the states have pure contributory negligence that says if the patient does anything wrong, then they can't move forward. Um, but the other states have comparative fault. 
And so some states will have pure comparative fault, which says if the patient is 90% wrong, they can still sue and try to get 10% of the award. Uh, some states say if the patient is 50%, you know, half wrong or 51%, more than half wrong, then they can't move forward. Okay, so Let me tell you that those discussions, though, are very difficult in front of a jury. Uh, who should, you know, who's 25% wrong, 50% wrong? I think that that is whenever you're down to a comparative defense, um, it's, I don't think it's ever pleasant for the doctor, the healthcare entity, because there are going to be people on that jury who believe that the package should have been put completely together. And um, I've just seen that go haywire a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. So then it comes real battle of the expert to have the jury decide those um, percentage points. It it gets uh, really hard. But just for the audience, too, that's like in comparative fault. So if you move forward and say the patient's awarded $100,000, but it's 90% their fault, then they only get the 10% left over, which would be 10000 out of 100000 So that's how it's applied to, to awards. Greg, do you um, know offhand the contributory negligence states? Because uh, they yes, sound like they are the kind of like the um, – I got to believe Arizona is one of them. Oh, uh, actually, it's oh the the pure ones are Alabama, Maryland, North Carolina, Virginia, and D.C. What? Uh, Arizona, D.C. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so California, where you are, Rick, is a is a comparative fault rule where they actually do whatever percentage. And Michigan is a fifty one percent where you're at, Greg. If if the patient is found fifty one percent or more at fault, then they then they can't pursue the case. Right. And and the contributory negligence states, Alabama, Maryland, oh. North Carolina, Virginia, and D.C. Wow, I would have th- I would have not intuited some of those. I saw, I viewed yeah. some of those places as enlightened. That's why that's why I that's why I put in Arizona because they don't seem to be all that enlightened down there. Um, yeah. I can say that because I'm a at least a part-time resident of Arizona. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's very helpful. Um, we we did do a paper recently, and you might have even helped us do that paper where the focus was on contributory versus um, comparative fault. Yeah, um, that, that was something we talked about before. Yes. Right. Okay. That, um, let's uh, let me see if I got any notes here. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, I you mentioned the Rogam case. Right. Certainly, there must be some obligation on the part of a physician who knows a person is pregnant and is a candidate to ask about their RH status or not even ask about it to determine their RH status. So it, it, it seems that that guy really skated, skated free there so, simply because he did not ask and she did not tell. Right, right. That case was from a while back, but um, it was just a nice illustration of of, of how you can use this defense. Um, another one that the way it's often used is, you know, a patient has a test and they, they need to be contacted for the results, but they've given you the wrong address or phone number, and then their cancer goes on or their sepsis goes on to cause a bad outcome, then you're going to use this defense. It's like, hey, if they're not going to give me the right phone number... Uh, you know, um, 
what can I do? And uh, Greg, I've seen that fought out a half a dozen times. And I, I bet if we went through all of the addresses and phone numbers in all of our databases, how do we know the patient gave them a wrong phone number and we didn't transcribe that number? One of our people didn't try, transcribe the number incorrectly. I've right. seen that a couple of times where it would have been uh, the last number is six instead of nine sort of thing. Whose fault is that? And, and then I think the other reaction was when you couldn't get them at that phone number, what did you do? Did you send them a, uh, a, a, an email? Did you look up their phone number in the phone book? Did you do these various things which a reasonable person would do who cared about the patient? Yeah. The, the, the primary, the, the majority of emergency department cases that will use this is, is, use, is most often with kind of follow-up care things. You need to come back and get this checked. You need to get this test followed up. And then they don't do it. And in the world of medicine, a lot of times it's patients like diabetics who continue to smoke and not take their medicine and then have an outcome. And the physician will say, well, they, they were not doing what they were told to do and it's not my fault. I'll tell you, this is going to be a huge expanding effort because they're not only just doing congestive heart failure patients by phone and asthma patients by phone. There's a huge uh, paper and a series of studies out by Greg Larkin that talked about phone management of depression and getting in contact and the computer actually talks to the patient or it sends them texts. How are you doing today? And they get to answer on their cell phones. Um, the, the, this area of, of communication contact, I think, is going to become worse and not better at this point in time. Yeah. Moving guess, on? Yeah, the next, the next uh, defense is, uh, you know, it's not going to come up that often, but I sort of loved it when I saw it. And um, this was a case of a, you know, of a new, like here we are in July and everyone's new. And, and an intern was uh, sewing up a laceration on a patient. And when they injected the anesthetic, the patient uh, had some fluttering in their eyes and some seizure movement of their arms and, uh, you know, probably a vagal type uh, reaction. And um, the intern had never seen this before. And they ran to get their attending to, to find out what to do. And the patient then fell off the gurney and had a head injury. So when you look at malpractice again, was there a duty? Yes, it was my patient. Was there a breach of duty? Should you run away when your patient's sick? Um, no. Was there harm, head injury? And was it your fault? Yes, the, red, the rail was down. You ran away and you didn't stop them. Uh, so it looks like you're sort of hosed there. Um, but they used a unique defense called the sudden emergency defense. And uh, that's a real legal defense. And, and it says that you know people don't usually – behave reasonably when they're in a sudden emergency. It's most often in car accidents where someone gets hit and then they may press the gas and hit another car and their defense, well, of course I wouldn't hit the gas, but I'd just been hit myself. And um, so in this case, they use the sudden emergency in the emergency department defense, which I thought was kind of creative and uh, we're able to get off the hook on that. So. You know, it's creative, but if, but I, I want to be as fair as I can to the plaintiffs here. Uh, if if an emergency department can't handle emergencies, who can in the country? Yeah. I, I mean, where is it? Where are you supposed to go to know what to do to put the side rail up to 
to yell instead of uh, leave the side of the patient. You know, when you kind of put some of these things together, uh, and I'm as conservative as they get on all issues, but, you know, the plaintiff may have, may have an intelligent question being asked here. And right. uh, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't hope that, that every, every uh, uh, jury is going to take that one. Yeah, now, th- th- this kind of crosses over, but I'll, I, on another, so how would this relate to emergency medicine? Well, one thing would be like, uh, say there was disasters and you're confronted with like a sudden overwhelming kind of emergency situation. And yes, you're in the emergency department in your normal environment with your normal skills, but this sudden massive emergency uh, might cause you to not behave the way you would with a single patient. And I, I know like California, this kind of crosses over with the Good Samaritan defense. And I know California has a law that protects emergency physicians. But you could see where, you know, this defense is possible in some situations where even you as the emergency physician uh, are, are kind of overwhelmed with a sudden situation and might not do your best if, if things were calmer. You know, when I've heard that argument come up, Greg, um, I know docs will actually put on their chart. If they're overwhelmed, they, they, they note somewhere in disaster mode or something like that, if they ever had to go talk about this case, because it always gets talked about four years later, you know, in, in some office when, where somebody's taking a deposition, you ought to at least have something to let them know why uh, something may have been done, which wasn't the usual and customary standard of, of care. By the way, we use the term disaster like there was a hurricane or something like that. I define disaster as any time that the resources of that department are overwhelmed, which would probably be every night at Detroit receiving something like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, disaster is a relative term, I think. And I, yeah. you know, my view of it is, is, is if in fact, disasters happen at your hospital every day, that it would certainly um, dilute the ability of your group to say, uh, that's why we act in such a way. Because basically you have a department which can then be challenged in terms of its level of staffing, the level of backup, what contingency plans have been uh, developed because this is not a quote-unquote disaster in that it is viewed as a rare event. But every day, doctor, there are more patients here that can be reasonably seen, and you have done nothing to uh, mitigate that. And uh, sorry, we're we're just not going to go for it this time. Right? Yeah, yeah I, I think I, I think there are things the public will handle as a disaster. SARS was probably a disaster, certainly in Toronto. Um, H one N one in certain areas was a disaster. And we met to talk about what we were going to do, where were we going to see certain patients? Could we use a, an elementary school as kind of backup? But they were uh, exceptional events, you know, one in every 10 year kind of events. It wasn't the fact that every night there's a four hour wait to see the doctor. That, that's a disaster almost by design, which is waiting to happen. Yeah. Greg, anything further on um, this No, I, th- I think that defense is uh, not going to come up a lot. Uh, I, I thought it was kind of interesting and, and uh, 
you know, I wanted people to know that it's out there. That it's, it's a very accepted legal concept that when you're in a sudden stressful situation uh, that you're not expecting, um, you're not necessarily expected to behave completely uh, rationally. You also mentioned, Greg, that um, if one of your emergency physician colleagues comes in to help, but it was under no obligation to come in to help, that it may ap- apply there as well. Right, right. But that would be more under the Good Samaritan defense. You know, I had well, no obligation. But, and- but if they had no obligation to come in and they came in, let's say, for four hours and they sent bills for those patients, that would negate any Good Samaritan at that moment in time. I mean, they came in to work in their usual and customary location – uh, doing what what they hang out shingle to do, which right. is see yeah, patients. The, the charge is the key. What you know for a good Samaritan, you have to have all six of those requirements, and one of them is no charge. So exactly. once you charge, then you can't use any of the, any of the the defense. Mm-hmm. I'm moving on. The, the next one is a respectable minority, and uh, this concept is that uh, you know just because you're not in the majority of physicians in doing something or practicing some way doesn't mean that you are not doing the standard of care. In other words, the standard of care isn't just the majority opinion. Um, You could be one of the few and um, not be held liable just because everyone else does it this way. Now, uh, the, the classic case is a neurosurgeon and who treated vascular insufficiency with Primarin, female hormones, and had a patient that then got large, a male that got large breasts and lost his sexual desire, and he sued. And um, this neurosurgeon was in Nashville, and he was the only one that gave hormones for vascular insufficiency. And um, But then he used this respectable minority rule. Uh, even though he was the only one in Nashville, there were many neurosurgeons out in San Francisco that were doing the same thing. And so, um, you know, he was, he got off of this case because he was a minority, but it was a respectable minority. Other learned and educated and solid physicians practiced that way as well. So uh, obviously the respectable minority can't be one. You can't be the only guy doing something and be a respectable minority. Um, but it kind of takes away the, the, well, Greg, we've talked yeah, we've talked many times on this program about the Daubert v. Merrill Dow challenge, which which says um, that that when junk science is presented in court, and I mean junk science, uh, that there is a reasonable challenge to experts who have junk science. Uh, and so, if thirty percent of doctors do it one way and seventy percent do it another, that mean that probably means that there's no 100% answer. We were uh, this year in the EMA courses talking about reduction of shoulders. We must have presented five different techniques, all of which are currently in use, which means uh, it doesn't matter whether the one you use is the most common used. There's a respectable group of people who use it. It's not junk science at that moment in time. Is it, it, does the Merrill Dow uh, Daubert question have anything to do with this? Um, that's more. That's a little more of an evidence question, and um, that case kind of came into not allowing uh, junk science, as as you've talked about. Um, you know, it has to be 
validated and real to be, you know, you, you can't have an expert getting up there and just kind of blowing BS that's not really scientifically validated. It has to have kind of a reality to it. So um, that that's kind of what that goes after. The, well, you know, the, exa- the example I give of, of how this might impact emergency medicine is, Say you're in an area like um, pulmonary embolus. You know, some people are treating that as an outpatient. I don't think the majority of us are, but some are. And there's a fair amount of evidence saying in certain patients that's okay. So say you treated a pulmonary embolus as an outpatient and things didn't go well. Uh, this is the kind of defense you might say, well, yeah, most people don't do this, but I have a lot of reasons and a lot of evidence and I feel this way, and other people that are educated feel this way as well. And so you, you could see where that would come, come into play. Um, it's just basically saying you don't have to be in the crowd to be practicing uh, appropriate standard of care medicine. This, this uh, standard seems to be one where you can um, challenge the, quote, standard of care, saying that um, other people who are respectable – and, uh, and there's uh, some reasonable number of them do something uh, differently. So um, the, the battle of the experts becomes uh, what, is this, what is the standard? Did you breach the standard? And, and your response is, well, there are multiple standards that have been adopted. And I followed this one. Because, I think yeah, that's so, the point, Rick, that, so the, that there the, are lots. Oh, go ahead. No, uh, so that you know, the court actually a quote from the court. It court is that this physician chose a mode or form of treatment which is reasonable and a prudent member of the medical profession, other than themselves, would also use. So, mm-hmm. you, in other words, it's uh, it's uh, basically saying because you're a minority, you can't be picked on. <laughs> right. So then, the, then a very similar concept is called two schools of thought. And a lot of times we get um, in a place where we had a duty, you know, maybe we didn't do that good uh, and there was harm as a result. The, the, the easy example would be sometimes you're faced with choosing an antibiotic and you pick one and the patient dies and later the culture grows out something that another antibiotic would have cured. And But when you're there – you know, some would have chose medicine A, some would have chose medicine B, but you're there and you have to make a choice. And just because you made the wrong choice in hindsight doesn't mean that you're negligent because uh, there was two schools of thought. Chemotherapy is another example. You know, I have to choose a chemotherapy regimen for this cancer. Uh, you're going to have experts come in and say, well, if you would have chosen this other chemotherapy, they wouldn't have died. Um, this is a defense you can use. One interesting thing is, uh, you know, I did see a case in emergency medicine where someone tried to use this for a missed appendicitis. (laughs) And they said, well, you know, there were two schools of thought. One thought was to call the surgeon and get a consult, and the other thought was to discharge them. And I discharged them, but that was just one of the schools of thought. And the court said, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. Um, you You can't use this to defend every bad decision. Well, there's one part in here that certainly sounds like it was made for um, TPA. Um, There's a quote in here that says a medical practitioner has an absolute defense in a claim of negligence 
when it is determined that the prescribed treatment or procedure has been approved by one group of medical experts, even though an alternative school of thought recommends another approach, or it is agreed among experts that an alternate treatments and practices are acceptable. So this is kind of like the battle of the bands here where um, Merck Academy of Neurology says, yeah, yeah, this is what you're supposed to do. And other organizations say, uh, well, not so, not, not so quickly. Although my understanding is, is that the ASAP position on this has, has become progressively watered down. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think, though, Rick, that, that you are going to have to take each individual case as it comes along. Um, after all, now it's four hours and 30 minutes. Where does that fit in? I, I, I think that at any moment in time and in any particular case, there are going to be reasonable arguments in either way. The question is, can, do reasonable physicians have a right to a difference of opinion? And I think that they do. That, that there are lots of different ways of skinning cats, and, and we shouldn't get bullied into this. Uh, there is only one way to do it. Because I think, quite frankly, probably 70 or 80% of what we do in, in medicine is tradition and not actually proven in, in good literature and science. Oh, actually, it's really fascinating you mentioned that because in the most recent version of EMA, which was taped a week ago, there was a fabulous paper um, that looked at literature in 2009. And first of all, they said there's not a lot of study of traditional practices. All the literature looks at trying something new, different, etc. But they found 35 studies in 2009 that looked at traditional practices and based on the evidence and the review of those studies, half of them, half of them were not meritorious, despite the fact that th this is what people do and patients don't get the optimal outcomes and results because th the, it, it is the customary practices are not, you know, uh, keeping up with uh, current science, those kinds of things. And it was rather, rather discouraging. So, but this paper agrees with you 200 percent uh, that um, that's what's going on. And well, there's it's this need for physicians to be willing to challenge, well, does it really matter if we pack a wound? Does it really matter if we give antibiotics with an abscess? Does it, so many of these routine kinds of things, which are done all the time, but which in fact science does not support. Well, you know, Samuel Johnson, Dr. Samuel Johnson, said it best. He says the principal job of the physician is to entertain the patient while nature takes its course. And I, I, I honestly believe that a lot of things we do, give it heat, give it cold, raise it up, let it hang down. A lot of these things have not undergone great scrutiny and I and I just I just believe that a lot of stuff we do is again entertainment and not science. Greg, you have a paragraph here that basically says um, it's not the jury's job to determine which of the two schools of thought on how to handle something are correct, but to acknowledge that there are two schools of thought and that both of them are considered legitimate. And uh, and when that occurs that you've kind of accomplished the goal here uh, of this two schools of thought um, strategy. Right. And then what you do is you ask the judge to, to tell the jury, hey, uh, Dr. Moore doesn't have to be in the majority here uh, to be a good doctor. 
Um, and they and the court will use words like considerable if there's a considerable number of physicians who do this way, or and they are reputable and respected, then this is okay. Now, the you know the respectable minority can't be one because then you're a cowboy. Um, but if you can say and 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 then the law is vague. What what is a considerable number? That's where they're arguing court. I mean, is five a considerable number in your community, or is a hundred a cons- you know? So that's kind of where they argue as well. But what you get out of this is an instruction to the jury: Hey, he's not guilty just because most people would have done it this other way. So this is really a case where the experts might say, uh, "This is what one expert says. This is what should have been done." Another expert says, "This is what should have been done." And it's not; it is therefore not black and white. And we could make the case that uh, either could have been done. And if either could have been done, you've made this case. Yeah. So you might let's just go back to my PE example. You might have some expert say, "Look, here's several papers that show that 95% of PE patients are admitted. Therefore, you know, you discharged yours. You're in the 5%. You're in the minority. You're not doing it right." Uh, this defense would say, no, just because you're in the minority and you're one of the 5% who discharge them, you have other respected, intelligent, uh, and a considerable number of physicians who do the same things, then you're going to tell the jury that 95% does not, you, you know, you should ignore that number. Um, is that, did we beat up all the elements of that uh, yeah. component there? The the last one is uh, it, it's kind of you know it's not one I would hang my practice on and it's called clinical innovation and the the, the classic experimentation case, yeah exactly because you're experimentation. walking you're, yeah you're walking the line um, and the classic case was a a radiologist that wanted to get a contrast study in a kid and um, they couldn't get IV access and um, so most most experts recommended you would inject the this is back in the 50s you inject the contrast into the buttocks and then take your films uh but that was for adults there really wasn't much on kids and he, this um radiologist injected the contrast into the calf of the kid who then developed Achilles tendon shortening and required surgery so so then they got sued and so he came into court uh and was the first one to use this clinical innovation defense. And basically it says that sometimes in medicine you're in a place where you've never been before and no one has, and you try to use your best knowledge and and experience and judgment uh, to do the right thing. Um, And, you know, since you've never been there before, uh, how can you guarantee a good outcome and so this radiologist kind of produced literature said that he had read that it's not good to do it in the buttocks of children. And he personally had done it many times in the calves of children. So he used some research, some experience, and uh, got off of this case. Now, you know, this kind of, like you said, borders on experimentation. So I wouldn't go around practicing saying, oh, I'm just going to use the clinical innovation defense. Uh, the key, if you're going to use this, is you were only caring and trying to help the patient. Uh, you had to do something. Uh, you hadn't been there before, or you had been there before and used this technique. Uh, that's yeah, I when think you're gonna... this is 
this is dangerous territory, Greg. Very, uh, very much so. Very much so. Uh, there's a way we actually carry on experimentation. We get things like approval of a study by right. by a committee that looks to see whether there's any reasonableness of this. I mean, I could use that to, to defend anything I did in the department saying, well, you know, we took a chance on it. Um, I, I, I certainly wouldn't want to be resting, uh, you know, the farm. I wouldn't want to bet the farm on this defense. Yeah, so you want to hear an interesting, I just actually saw it this morning, but with the first a uh, heart transplant was by Dr. I think is it was it Denton Cooley? Cooley, Dr. Cooley. Denton Cooley down in down in Texas someplace. So I think there was a race to do heart transplants between yes. him and Dr. DeBakey. And Dr. Cooley did the first one and the patient sued him. So uh, he actually used, you know, then the and the question is, is this clinical innovation or is this an experiment? And um Actually, the expert against him was Dr. DeBakey, who said, I would have never have done this. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> so Those were two personalities, right? So, so the whole thing focused around being in a place you'd never been before. I need to do something. I'm going to use my experience and, and try to help this patient. So like the, another one would be an end-stage patient where you try a never-used chemotherapy. You know, Again, you're going to get consent, but – you know, we've never been here. We're going to try something. It's to help the patient. It's not an experiment. That's when you're going to use this kind of kind of a defense. And uh, he actually got off for this. So well, you know, in, in the last issue of um, the abstracts, there was a case study. And case studies, I think, often involve uh, treatment that is considered unorthodox. And there's only one case, in, you know, uh, presented. And in this case, it was a case of an overdose on amlodipine, which is a long-acting calcium channel blocker. And they went through the fact that this person took a bunch, and they were doing worse and worse, and they, and they were giving them all kinds of drugs that would normally be given. Um, and ultimately, they gave methylene blue to this person on the theory that nitric acid was one of the culprits, and then methylene blue, at least physiologically, had some capacity to uh, limit the production of nitric acid. So they went on a physiologic concept when nothing else worked, and the patient was wind, wound up playing the piano again. But this was certainly experimentation, but it was based on some physiologic reasoning, and their backs were to the wall because they had tried all of the conventional kinds of things to do. And I think a lot of case studies are of that, lil of that ilk. And I yeah, think... And, yeah, so this, this kind of follows along that line. You don't want to kind of have your general practice being based on clinical innovation. Um, but, but, but it does apply. And uh, yeah, like you said, the case studies are probably usually the victories. They probably don't publish. Hey. Well, <laughs> I, I don't want to play Jerry Hoffman here, but... Uh, I bet there's an awful lot of things tried that don't work that never get written up. Uh, I, 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 I think it's hard to put this in the category of, of pure science, believe me. And, and uh, sometimes, st just statistically, something happens that uh, had nothing to do with giving the methylene blue, that sort of thing. And I, th I think we need to uh, uh, take some of this with just a little grain of salt, Rick. Well, they believed that there was reasonable scientific 
evidence to give this uh, to give this treatment. Now I don't recall whether there was any other cases cited in this in this case study where that uh, this was given, but I think that when your back is to the wall, things are going really badly. That we uh, we are allowed to become more aggressive in the area of trying something that may be experimental when when all conventional treatments have not worked. Yes, I, th- I think end-of-life questions uh, on th- people who are potentially could be saved, there probably is an exception there. But for most emergency docs, again, I wouldn't count on that as my first line of defense. Yeah, th- those, are, those are the two kind of views that are perfect for this. I mean, it's quasi-experimenting, but the court will also recognize that it's when you do these kind of things that you do get some advancement of medicine sometimes. Like, Rick, the case report, now people, you know, when they're in that situation again, hmm, maybe this will work. This guy tried it. Uh, if it didn't work, then you might use this clinical innovation defense. But, like, you, you definitely don't want to pattern your career after you don't want to be like a clinical innovation ER specialist, <laughs> then you're asking for trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Well, Greg, so, uh, I want to thank you very much for uh, for participating with us and uh, doing the paper. It uh, it really is an addition to the literature, and I hope that any physician who's now involved in a medical legal case takes that article and at least gives it to his uh, his attorney and says and and. With the caveat, have we thought about all of these things? I think physicians become sometimes very passive during the process, and you are allowed to participate and ask questions in a respectful manner. And I hope they do that because I think this is useful information. Yeah, and that that was really the purpose of it. You you think, oh, there was a bad outcome, and and I and I maybe breached the standard of care, and it's hopeless, and I give up. And some lawyers will do this, but if you're aware of some of these, there's a lot of room to still pull rabbits out of a hat, and and that and that was the purpose. And and I gotta I gotta at the end give kudos to Dr. Hudson again. Um, you know, very very nice uh, paper that you know he's a huge part of. Well, listen, yeah, as, as well, go I was ahead. Just- I was of the same view that um, physicians need to actively become involved in their cases uh, when they get sued and um, not just hand it over to the lawyers. And um, I think this is, this is the kind of information that will allow you to assess, frankly, uh, how, dis- how good your lawyer is. Are they aware of these uh, uh, options? Because if they're not, man, I'd get really – uh, kind of nervous because I think any lawyer worth his salt would know uh, all of these, if not more, ways of dealing with the, the four elements of a malpractice suit and how to try to wiggle through them. And if you're handing this over to your lawyer and he said, ah, this is interesting, never saw that before, I'd kind of get somebody else. So I really do think, <laughs> as, as you, Greg, that you have to actively take a part in the in these cases. And I think that these lawyers... When they, you know, when you do that, they're going to be appreciative as long as you don't become a pest uh, about stuff. But um, the more they can know, the better off I think you'll be. Yep, Rick. Before we uh, call this uh, this session to a halt, we have a moment of uh, seriousness, and that is those of us who have been in emergency medicine for a long time. 
there's obviously a group of people who have been with us, have, have, we've seen at the meetings, we've talked to, and we'd like to uh, pass on our condolences to the family of Dr. John Marks, who, uh, who perished last week. Right, I did get that notice, uh, and Greg, you sent it around to us. Um, I know Steve Cluciello works uh, with John Marks. I sent Steve a note, and Steve basically was crushed by this. Apparently, this was a, um, a sudden, unexpected death of a pioneer in emergency medicine. I mean, John was one of the uh, lead authors on the, the, um, the Rosen textbook, I believe. Yes, and which is the the Bible of emergency medicine, uh, I, the the Carolinas Department I know for a fact is one of the most innovative uh, departments in emergency medicine in the country. And although I didn't know John personally, I certainly know of what he has accomplished. And we have lost an emergency medicine giant. And um, I too wish his family uh, the best. This is a this was a very sad event. Um, wine of the month. Again, I um, have been uh, tra- uh, on my travels, and wherever I go, we hear more comments about wine of the month than we do any of the actual medical legal issues we present. And I would point out to you that occasionally an article comes out, which is absolutely spectacular. There's a retrospective view of the 2002 Napa. Again, we're talking about USA. California wines, where they went back and looked 10 years later. What did the, how did the 2002s do? I want to point out that two of them are considered as good, and this is by Parker, who is, I consider, as good a wine expert as there is in the world, says that there are 200-point wines. The, uh, the Madrona Ranch uh, proprietary red wine, Napa Valley, 350 bucks a bottle is 100. Now, the important thing is, in his review of these wines, you can get, for about a tenth that, in fact, a twelfth of that, Coho, C-O-H-O, the 2002 Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, that's made in Combsville, California, and it is considered to be a 94, and he says, let me just, Parker again, and the sleeper of the vintage, a, an exceptional wine, proud to serve at any uh, function, uh, th- less than $30 a bottle. You can frequently get this for, and it is considered a 94-point wine. So for those of you who really want a great wine at not great money, this is the one to go for, Coho from, uh, again, the Napa Valley region. I think that's it. Um, I want to thank uh, Greg Moore who has uh, become a, a, a um, periodic contributor to us, uh, MDJD up in the uh, Madigan uh, Army Medical Center. And, uh, we have to do our usual shout-out out there to uh, Maria Hugie and uh, Joe. Um, come on, help me with Joe's last Littner. name. Joe Littner. Joe Littner. They do uh, teaching up there and are, are good friends and uh, participate in our Whistler courses every year, and they always bring residents with them. Uh, really generous people and very sweet people. So hello to uh, Marie and Joe. And uh, Greg, you got something in the pipeline coming uh, in more of uh, articles so that you um, can tell us about? Uh, yes. I've, yep. oh, no, no, I'm oh, talking about Greg Moore. I, I, oh, I know, okay. Greg, you, Greg Henry, you always have something in the pipeline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, we meant, you mentioned it earlier uh, with the physician assistants and nurse practitioners, but um, we're working on uh, things with liability, like how does the court decide and who gets in trouble when you have a physician and a nurse practitioner, a nurse and a physician, a physician and a resident, all the, you know, a pharmacist and a physician, all the different professional interactions where we're grabbing cases and seeing how does it shake out, who takes the hit, what are the guidelines sort of thing. So it's kind of kind of an interesting thing on the Well, that's rise. a fabulous topic because uh, oddly enough, in one week, uh, Greg Henry and I and Diane Birnbomber and Billy Mallon and, and uh, a number of uh, advanced practice clinicians will be teaching a course in Las Vegas at the Paris Hotel. And this is not a commercial because by the time this gets out, it will be uh, over. But um, on emergency medicine for nurse practitioners, PAs, and primary care doctors who either do or want to do emergency medicine because we're very concerned that uh, uh, just too much of this is see one, do one, teach one. And that um, since so many patients now are being seen by these advanced practice clinicians, that we need to do something a little bit more systematic in terms of emergency medicine. So we have about 700 people attending uh, next week's course, and we but uh, and uh, we started a, 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 an encore performance December 3rd through the 6th in Las Vegas at the Paris Hotel. Now, that is a commercial because that one isn't over by the time you hear this one. So um, we think it's going to be a terrific course, and I think that there's a great need, and I think this level of attendance reflects that need um, uh, because, you know, we took the position all the docs had to be board certified in emergency medicine if they're working in the ER, but you know, when you start backpedaling and say, well, what is the training of the PAs and, and Ps, uh, it gets a little, uh, it's uh, a little bit more hemming and hawing about what their training is. Yeah. In 10 years, this entire uh, area has changed dramatically. And, and quite frankly, the laws, uh, how it's going to be handled are very much state to state. We don't know where a lot of this stuff is going. And stay tuned because the, the number of cases which I have, which I'm actively working on, which include uh, both the physician and some type of advanced practitioner, has gone up by a factor of 10 in the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the, the issue, we've done uh, papers, uh, you and I, Greg, in the past um, monthly reports, um, and it all seems to boil down to supervision and communication. Uh in any case, um, I think that's a wrap for the July issue. Greg Moore, thanks so much for being with us. And um, we, we look forward particularly to a paper on the role of non-physicians in um, getting people into trouble in the emergency department. That would be a fascinating, fascinating uh, paper, and it is kind of right in tune with things we're interested in right now. And Gregory, you've been a good boy. You didn't say anything to offend anybody this month that I'm aware of. <laughs> Days early yet, Rick. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, you can you can offend your private folks back there in your office. Um, guys, thanks very much for listening. This is the July issue of Risk Management Monthly. Take it easy. We'll talk with you next time. And next time, I believe we have a, a um, Michael um, Michael um, Weinstock. Weinstock case, yes, with a, a real lawyer on the case, 
and some uh, real good stuff coming up uh, in next month's issue. So we'll look forward to Michael Weinstock. Greg Moore, thanks for being with us, guys. Signing out. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye.